Now, and let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Sunday morning, here we begin a new series in the book of Philippians, and uh, a reminder as we're finding our way there that on Sunday nights we do go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We'll be studying the Gospel according to John, chapter 8 this evening, and a very, very rich passage, and each of you are invited. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all of the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you with all joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it under the day of Jesus Christ, just as it is right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace." For God is my witness how greatly I long for you with all of the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these two videos that we've seen and what our brothers have put before us. And thank you for your activity in this community and all around the world, always reaching out to people so often, the moment of their greatest need and hopelessness coming in and being overwhelmed. Thank you so much for the body of Christ all around the world. We thank you. and for these shoe boxes that will just go out to millions of children. We pray for each one of them, Lord, to have an eternal impact in every child's life. We just see the pictures up on the video. They touch our hearts, Lord. You know everything about them and want them to know you. And we pray this would be a tremendous year of harvest through the Operation Christmas Child. Bless us as we study your word this morning. Thank you for your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Paul established the church in Philippi during his second missionary uh, journey. Uh, the details of it and the details are uh, beautiful and extraordinary are found in Acts chapter 16. And as a result of this and other things, Paul developed a very, very unique relationship with this church uh, in comparison to other churches that he had uh, established. This church loved him. Uh, this church stood uh, by his uh, side. This church respected him. Uh, unlike, uh, for example, the church at Corinth, which uh, dealt so... Um, carelessly with him and treated him so uh, disrespectfully. 
Paul's fondness for this church, as you read it, and I know that the book is a letter is a, a great friend to many of you, his fondness for the church just fairly leaps off of the page. He can uh, hardly contain it as if he would want to at uh, all. They were a church that uh, he could open his heart up to, uh, and he felt very safe in doing that. They had expressed their personal love for him and their uh, support for his ministry, and then long after he had left the city of Philippi to then move on to establish churches in other parts uh, of the world, and then when they continued to look after him and continued to keep track of him uh, during the ten years that had passed from the time of the establishment of the church to his writing, uh, of this letter uh, to them. And as we're going to see, they were unique among all of the churches that Paul established in that they continued to uh, support him financially over the years of his ministry as they were able to. When they found out that Paul was imprisoned in Rome, and this is a prison epistle, he writes it from prison, and we'll talk more about that another time. But when they heard that he was in prison, they immediately dispatched one of their brothers by the name of Epaphroditus to go and to make sure that he was taken care of uh, and to bring a financial gift to him in his uh, imprisonment. You may or may not be aware of the fact that in the ancient world, when you were put into prison, <clears throat> especially under Rome, uh, they didn't supply you with three square meals a day. Uh, they imprisoned you, and it was up to loved ones uh, to bring food to you every day and uh, bring you clothing and bring you blankets in the winter and all of these kind of things. And the church at Philippi knew he would need these things, being unable to uh, generate funds as a tent maker, as was his custom, and they sent Epaphroditus to look after him. The purpose of this letter is really fourfold. <clears throat> Paul writes this letter to thank them. It's a thank you note for their gift to him that Epaphroditus had brought. It is also <clears throat> written in order that he could provide them with an update about his condition and his situation. Third, he addressed uh, the, what seemed to be the never-ending problem in the early church, and that was false teachers coming into uh, the churches, the threat of them coming into uh, the church in Philippi, legalists, and drawing people away into legalism. And then fourth, he writes this letter to address a conflict of some sort between two women in the church that is now in danger of spilling over and uh, threatening the unity of the church. So there are a lot of things we can look at with <clears throat> the, excuse me, the book of Philippians and say this is the theme of it. And Many commentators and Bible students have lots of ideas about that. Certainly a central theme uh, to the book is unity. Uh, right on the heels of that is uh, humility. And you're never going to have unity, even with two people, uh, let alone a whole church, without uh, humility of uh, being a part of that church. I also think as to the theme of the book, it's impossible to ignore the fact that some form of the words uh, joy or rejoice uh, are used uh, 16 times in this letter, 
in the course of uh, the four short chapters. If you go into some kind of a concordance and you're trying to find 16 joys or rejoices, you'll only find 14. Uh, the same Greek word is translated twice in the letter uh, as glad. And so uh, a loss of joy within this congregation was a, a clear concern for uh, the Apostle Paul. And so behind all of the invaluable uh, instruction that he uh, gives us as Christians here uh, in this letter, the encouragement that is found there, uh, all of which will examine in their own right, uh, is Paul's overarching concern for their joy. And so we'll see if there aren't some hints within the letter for uh, uh, maintaining or achieving uh, joy uh, in our lives as Christians and then make them an application to our lives as well. And so that will be the theme that we'll be looking at in our study of Philippians. And if the Lord tarries and God willing, uh, we'll take this theme of rejoicing and joy uh, into the spring. So this will be our winter of joy uh, in the book of, of Philippians. And uh, any, any time is good, but winter is especially a good time for that subject. Biblically, in terms of what joy is, it's important to understand that there is a vast difference between uh, this thing called happiness and what the Bible describes uh, as joy. There's nothing wrong at all uh, with being happy, but happiness does possess a weakness, and the weakness is, is that it's almost entirely dependent upon our physical uh, circumstances. And so when my circumstances are favorable, I am happy. But when my circumstances are not favorable, then I am unhappy. And because happiness is tied to our circumstances, and our circumstances are always changing in life, then happiness has a way of being something that is fleeting or something that is constantly coming and going in our lives. Joy, as the Bible speaks of it for us as Christians, is very different. And joy is intended to be a constant in our lives. And the reason that it can be a constant in our lives is it has its source, it has an inexhaustible source related to our lives uh, in that it is provided to us by the Holy Spirit. Uh, its source in, in our lives is not the circumstances of our lives, but the Holy Spirit. Uh, joy is a part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives, Galatians chapter 5. Second, it is intended uh, to be a constant in our lives, this joy, uh, because the reasons for our joy as Christians, all of them lie beyond the reach of our circumstances. They lie beyond every threat to joy in our lives that exists within the world. And so how could the Apostle Paul uh, experience joy while he is being uh, unfairly uh, imprisoned in Rome and then call on us to rejoice repeatedly in this letter, uh, whatever our circumstances might be, unless the source of our joy lies beyond the circumstances of this uh, life, the things that would threaten our joy. Examples of all of the things that we have to rejoice in in life as Christians, the things that lie beyond the reach of life's circumstances, 
and, and that never change in our lives are things like our salvation, um, everlasting life, the fact that God has not only forgiven our sins, but He does forgive our sins, uh, that we are sealed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that God loves us and that God for, uh, is for us. Circumstances in life never change those things in our lives as Christians, that God will never leave us or forsake us. All of the promises that God has given to us in His Word, they never change on the basis of circumstances. The hope, the confidence of heaven that we possess, the friend that we have in Jesus, that never changes based upon the circumstances uh, of our uh, life. Now, as to the importance of joy, it's important for us to realize that God desires a joy-filled life for every one of us as Christians. He wants us to enjoy life. And, and that is a concern for him. It's a concern for uh, the Apostle Paul here. It isn't a matter of just kind of grinding through our three score and ten uh, of life here and then one day entering into a, a life of joy eternally in heaven. He wants us to know that uh, in this life as well. And the reason that I think this is important to understand is that it's very easy for us, even as Christians, to come to view joy as something that is optional in the Christian life. It's kind of like what power windows used to be when you would buy a car. Uh, something that would be nice if you had it, but if you didn't have it, you could get by, uh, you know, uh, almost as well uh, without it. And then the, for us to settle down into a joyless Christian life and then become content with it. And maybe I think the best test for whether we've uh, already done so is by asking ourselves whether my life is marked by joy this morning or uh, more by the things that are the opposite uh, of joy. Uh, for instance, anger as a dominating characteristic in my life. Uh, impatience. Uh, annoyance, uh, gloominess, uh, sulking, pessimism, negativity, grumbling, self-pity, despair, apathy, just throwing our hands up in the air and say, I just don't care uh, anymore. All of those things are polar opposites of, uh, of, of joy. And if these things have come to mark or dominate our lives as Christians, then it's important for us to know that we have a problem in that. That's a problem in the Christian life. And the book of Philippians will help us with that problem. The importance of, of joy in our lives as, Christian is as Christians is made clear in the book of Nehemiah when he declared to the children of God, even under the Old Covenant, uh, that the joy of the Lord uh, is our strength. I think it's important to realize that Jesus' life, for all of its problems, for all of the circumstances that He faced, including the cross, 
uh, that his life was marked by joy. Jesus declared in John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Again, joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Heaven is a place that's marked by joy. Jesus uh, gave the parable in terms of the faithful servant. And the servant uh, is greeted with the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Speaking of uh, eternity. Speaking of heaven. C.S. Lewis, as only C.S. Lewis can put it, he said, Joy is the serious business of heaven. (laughs) That's really uh, nicely put. You notice Paul's greeting here uh, as we begin here in in verse 1. And we remember that Paul's uh, epistles are letters. And so his letters took the form of ancient letter, uh, of letters in the ancient world. And they were made up of four characteristics. At least the introductions were the author of the letter would identify himself or herself at the beginning of the letter so you wouldn't have to go to the end of the letter. Now we have envelopes so people can know who the letter has come from without going to the final page. They didn't have envelopes in the in, in, in ancient times. So the writer would identify themselves at the onset. They would then uh, identify who they were speaking to. Uh, there would be words of greeting and then a word uh, of thanksgiving. And then finally the writer would introduce the, uh, the bulk of, of the subject matter uh, of the letter. The author of the letter is clearly in verse 1, the Apostle Paul. But he includes uh, Timothy here because Timothy is present with him in Rome, uh, not in prison with him, but is uh, assisting him there. And Paul wants the church at Philippi to know that Timothy shares the same heart for them that he shares, uh, shared uh, 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 for them as well. He described himself and Timothy as bondservants of Jesus Christ. And the imagery comes from the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 21, where a slave, speaking generally of a Jewish person who would then make themselves a slave or a servant to another Jew, typically to work off a debt, that that slave or that Jew could only be held as a bond slave for a period of seven years maximum, and then had to be uh, released from uh, their enslavement. And they had uh, then that uh, option of of leaving that that position of being a bond slave to their master. And uh, and they had the option uh, at the end of that being a bond slave and paying off their debt or the seven years coming, whichever uh, happened first, the bondservant would then have the freedom to make themselves a bondservant, uh, a slave to their owner for the rest of their lives, where they would look and say, you know, I know I've been a servant. I know I've been a slave. I know I've been a bondservant uh, to this Jewish family. And, uh, or, and, and, uh, and, and in this particular uh, circumstance... But they've treated me so well. The situation is so, has been so wonderful in every way. I, I have such affection for them. I don't want to leave. 
I know I cannot find a better portion in this whole world than what I experience in being a bondservant uh, to, this, uh, to this master. And then a, a, a bondservant was then free uh, to commit his life, the rest of his life, to be a servant to that master. And it involved uh, three things. He would do so out of the motive of love for his master. Uh, he would do it as an act of his free will. Uh, he was never forced to do so. And then third, uh, the commitment was permanent. It was a forever commitment uh, to that relationship. And I think it's beautiful to realize that this is how the Apostle Paul him, uh, saw himself supremely as he wrote his letters, uh, all of his epistles here, and, and introducing them. He introduced himself as a, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and it spoke of the fact that he was Jesus' servant. He was his servant uh, uh, be, uh, out, of, uh, a, out of his love for Jesus, uh, out, of, out of his free will, and his commitment to that position uh, was forever Jesus' lordship in his life. And so clearly, uh, Paul considered being a bondservant of Jesus Christ to be the highest title that, that he could uh, carry in life. And he never seemed to lose his uh, sense of privilege related to that. Paul is writing to, also in verse 1, to the saints in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. And here he declares every single individual Christian in the church at Philippi to be a saint. And every single Christian in the world is a saint. And to be a saint, it simply means someone who is now set aside to God's use or to his uh, purposes, and every Christian is a saint. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church, if that's your background, you realize they have a whole series of things that you have to go through, and, and then you die, and there's a series of events that have to occur before someone is declared to be a saint. The Bible knows nothing about that. And so what happens then is we begin to think that saints are extraordinary Christians of some kind, that they are a rare breed of Christian, when in fact the Bible teaches that every single Christian is a saint. And sometimes we can think that, well, you know, in terms of the views that people have related to being a saint, views that we can hold about being a saint, again, the idea that they're rare, that they're extraordinary, and, or we believe that a saint is a Christian who is perfect. And so you might even hear a Christian say, listen, I'm no saint. Yes, you are. Uh, you are a, a, a saint, and God calls us a saint, and then He calls us to live like one. And so what qualifies us uh, to be saints? Paul tells us here to all the saints in Christ Jesus. That's how we become saints. We trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We are now in Christ Jesus. The moment we do that, the moment we're born again, at that moment, our lives are now set aside for God's use in this world. And so we shouldn't refrain from 
recognizing ourselves as saints, uh, as Christians, out of some kind of a false humility uh, related to the term. Uh, I don't think it'd do any of us any harm at all to remind ourselves of this uh, regularly, maybe even to start uh, uh, the day and say, I am a saint uh, before I head out the door. My life is set aside unto God for His uh, purposes. And then what it would do is if we recognized one another to be saints, if we recognized ourselves individually to be saints, there will be the reminder then to live a life that is consistent uh, with that assessment and with that title. Uh, and in fact, uh, from this moment forward, I would like you to refer to me as Saint Damien uh, until the Lord comes back. To just reinforce that in my life, I know you won't mind. His words of greeting are given there in verse 2 when he says, grace to you and peace. Those two words, grace and peace, constituted uh, the way of greeting uh, in the ancient world. We say, have a great day, have a good day, that's how we do it today, how you doing? In the ancient world, the Greeks would uh, greet one another, the Gentile world, with the, uh, the Greek word uh, charis, and it means grace, and the idea is, have a great day. Uh, grace means unmerited favor. Have have a day that you don't deserve. I mean, that's a, a, a nice way of saying, you know, have a great day. The Jews, of course, they would greet one another with the word peace, shalom. And so their greeting was, have a day that is filled with peace. That was a, the highest blessing they could think of to bestow upon a person when they would, when they would greet them. And here Paul takes both of those greetings and he uses them in his introduction to the letter. And the order that Paul uses the words is very, very significant. He, he uses grace first and then peace. And he does so in all of his epistles. You will never find the order uh, reversed. Always grace first and then peace. And, uh, and all of that is entirely deliberate on Paul's part. And so, grace, unmerited favor, and uh, peace related to a relationship with God. And the, re and the reason that he does this is because he recognizes that peace is a byproduct of grace. That is, you can never know the peace of God until we know the grace of God. And, and no one can ever know peace in their relationship with God until they realize, until we realize, that not only is salvation based upon grace, so we can have a peace relationship with, with God, but our relationship with God is based upon grace so that we can be at peace in that relationship with God. The relationship that we have with God is based upon undeserved favor from God. If it wasn't, we would never know a moment's peace in that relationship because we fail too often. We come short too often uh, in, in our lives. 
And I'll tell you, that order, getting that order, it is grace and peace and salvation. It is grace and then peace and understanding how God wants to have a relationship with me that can just revolutionize a Christian's relationship with God and the intimacy of that relationship. It is not works in peace. It is not self-righteousness in peace. It is not human effort in peace. But it is grace and peace. You notice in verse 3 that Paul gives his personal expression of gratitude uh, for them. He declared in verse 3 that he thanked God for them every time he thought of them. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. I mean, that's just a wow sentence that, that he gives there. Every time he thought of them, this church in Philippi, he thanked God for having brought them uh, into his life. They were a constant source of, of thanksgiving in his life. In verse 4, he declared that every time he prayed for them, uh, he made making requests for them, uh, he did so with pure joy. They were a cause for thanksgiving in his life. They were a source of joy uh, in his life. And then in verse 5, and, and he brings forth the same thing in verses 7 and 8. What was behind this affection that Paul had for them and, and the joy that they produced within him? Verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, for fellowship is a common word every Christian ought to be aware of. It. It's the word uh, koinonia. And it means fellowship. It means oneness. It means uh, partnership. And so what did the Apostle Paul have in partnership or in fellowship uh, with these saints there uh, in Philippi? What did they have in common that Paul was so thankful for? Well, they each had a love for the truth of the gospel, of God's offer of salvation to mankind. And so they both possessed that. Each of them were active in sharing that invitation of God to salvation, and then each helped the other to do so. And he, and he stated uh, that they had done so in verse 5, from the first day until now. They had been a blessing and a source of joy to Paul from the moment God used Paul to establish the church there uh, in Philippi, and then for all of the ten years afterward, leading up to the writing of this letter uh, to them. They had remained faithful to Paul in their fellowship, in their giving, in their friendship, uh, despite the stigma that was attached to him in the ancient world as being a prisoner in a Roman prison. And uh, they recognized that the chains that he was under, they were evidence not of any kind of wrongdoing on his part, but an evidence of his faithfulness to the gospel and his faithfulness to what God had called him to do and to be and how to use his life. And they were a joy to him because they stuck with him through thick and thin. From the day that he met them and a relationship was established, all the way through these 10 years, 
Uh, these Christians had stuck with the Apostle Paul through all of it, and it was a cause for joy in his life. You notice his confidence, one of the famous verses in the Bible, his confidence concerning them and us, every uh, Christian there in, in verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it under the day of Jesus Christ. And the good work that God has begun in each of our lives uh, is conforming us into the image of Christ. And that God has not only, when we became Christians, began that work of conforming our character into, into the image uh, of, of Christ, and, and, but He's going to continue it. And what He began at the moment of salvation, He's going to complete it, and He'll remain active and committed to that right up to the moment of the rapture of the church, because after that it won't be necessary uh, at all. And what a beautiful truth this is, and really intended to produce a confidence within uh, our lives. That God is never going to stop uh, working in our lives in conforming us in this way. What He has begun in us, uh, He is going to complete. He always completes what He uh, begins. And so the question is uh, in our hearts this morning, are we confident of it concerning our own lives? God has begun this work in me, and I'm confident that He is going to continue it until the day that I stand in heaven. And, and certainty, certainly to lack that confidence would, would be a, a destructive blow uh, to joy in our lives. No Christian can really know the kind of joy that God wants us to know or to enjoy life the way that He intends us to enjoy life if we are not confident that what God began in us, He's going to complete, and that our salvation on that day, wherever we were, ultimately lands us uh, in the glory of heaven. And so this morning, just to take hold of this confidence that God wants us to have, and maybe commit that verse uh, to memory. So often we can look at our own imperfections. I know you have them, and uh, you might have noticed one or two in my life. And so we all have the imperfections within our lives, and we're very well aware of our, our imperfections. And so uh, and, and we can begin to doubt that and have this confidence because of our imperfections, our constant kind of two steps forward and one step back in our, our Christian life and in our Christian growth. But you do notice that God describes us as a work. God knew when He got up, He saved you and me that He got a project. And the nice thing about it is he loves projects. And so that should never discourage us uh, related to this. Paul then concluded his, this introduction in, uh, to his letter with a prayer for them, which he begins in verse 9. If you ever would look and say, boy, I wonder if, if I could come up after the service and the Apostle Paul was right here and I could just, 
And uh, he would say, well, what would you like me to pray for you about? And he'd say, I don't, just pray for me whatever is on your heart to pray for me. You might wonder what it is that he would, he would pray for you and pray for me. Well, he prayed it for the church at Philippi, that our love would abound more and more in verse 9. He doesn't accuse them of being unloving. He's making the point that no church or no Christian should ever stop growing in terms of our love for God and our love for our neighbor as ourself. And it's one of the great things about walking with the Lord for a while and, and falling more and more and more in love with Him is it will then translate into a love and a compassion uh, for uh, others uh, as well. He also prayed in verse 9 that our love would be marked by knowledge and all discernment. In other words, that the expression of our love in any situation, uh, that it would be guided by first learning what does God's Word teach about what I'm supposed to do in this situation. So our love needs to be uh, morally intelligent in, in that situation. And then he tells us the second thing uh, that we are to do is to simply then do that morally intelligent thing, spiritually intelligent thing, by applying what I've learned from the Word of God to that situation. Now, there are very many Christians, just like the world, that think that being loving is doing whatever anyone asks of me. And if I don't, uh, then I'm not being loving. I mean, we can have as much guilt as a Jewish mother uh, in this regard, even as, even as Christians. But true love, the love that Paul is describing here, is not blind, it's not gullible, it's not dominated by guilt or carnal emotions. It is exactly like God's love. It is discerning. And God's love always does what is best for the other person. Even when what is best is not always easiest for the other person or for ourselves. That is a mature love that, that looks like uh, God. I remember when the church was located downtown and there was a woman who came for a short time, and after the service was over, she would go out into the fellowship hall, and she would strike up conversations with different women in the fellowship hall, and then she would wait until the woman uh, might get up and go engage a conversation with another woman in the fellowship hall, or go to the restroom, and, uh, and if they left their purse, she would then go through it and, uh, and try to find money to steal. And as soon as I found out about it, I confronted her related to it, and I put restrictions upon how she could continue to fellowship uh, at the church until we could uh, trust her in, in this regard. I'll never forget her response. She said, this isn't a loving church. I'm going to go find a loving church. And of course, this is the kind of love that, you know, that, uh, the, the definitions that we work with. 
But it wouldn't have been loving to anybody to allow her to continue that. Wouldn't have been loving uh, to her to allow her to continue to do that. And then third in verse 10, he prayed that they would approve the things that are uh, excellent. And so that is in loving people uh, with this kind of knowledge of what the Bible has to say uh, and discernment that we will do what is uh, best for uh, people. And, uh, and, and then fourth in verse 10, Paul prayed that in doing so uh, to others we'd be sincere and without offense at Jesus' return. Uh, that is, as we do this and we love people and, and care for them in this way and, and with this kind of discernment and this, this kind of, of excellence uh, to realize that uh, we will never be the means of hurting anyone else as we treat them with purity, as we treat them with, without hypocrisy. And then finally, verse 11, Paul prayed that their lives and our lives would be filled with the fruits of righteousness. And so the previous uh, prayer requests that, that uh, Paul makes here related to them and us all of them have to do with the inward uh, of, uh, of our, our lives. And this addresses what we are uh, outwardly. And he's praying that our Christian life is not one that causes people to be put off from Christianity on the basis of the life that we're living, but that we would live a life that would bring glory and would bring praise uh, to God. And so he made that his prayer for them, and he, and he makes that his prayer for us as well. So we ask ourselves this morning, uh, would you say that that is true of your life? That my life is lived in such a way uh, that it doesn't put people off from Christianity at all, but it causes them uh, to uh, glorify and to praise uh, God. And if my life is one that is, as I live it practically, day in and day out, is one that becomes a stumbling block to anyone ever becoming a Christian, and that God will have to bring 10 or 20 other Christians that are of this category into a person's life to undo the damage that you are and I might be doing in other people's lives, if that's the damage that I'm doing, then that's something that needs to be repented of because this is a serious business and people are coming to conclusions about God and whether they want to be Christians based upon the life that we are living. And so the Apostle Paul here, he assumes of, of the Christian, of every Christian, that bringing glory and praise to God is important to them and important to us just as it uh, should be. And so we'll close our Bible study here this morning with the first of what I, I hope will be a weekly application uh, from this letter of the necessity uh, and the possibility of joy in the Christian life. The Apostle Paul gives us one key to joy uh, in the Christian life in verses 3 through 5. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, 
always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the Gospel from the first day until now. The fact of the matter is that each, in each of our lives, our lives are filled with people who are a grief to think about. They break our hearts with every thought uh, concerning them. Every thought of them upsets us. Every thought concerning them uh, troubles us. And the Apostle Paul certainly had many people like that in his life. We're going to read about some of them uh, next week. But he had so many people like that in his life as you would read through the book of Acts and read his, uh, his uh, epistles. But one of the keys to joy that Paul models for us here is, not, is to not allow such people to use up all of the oxygen or all of the space uh, in our brains. But instead, like him, to stop and remember, as he does with this church at Philippi and the saints there, to stop and remember all of the people in our lives that we, like the Apostle Paul, are able to say of them, I thank my God upon every remembrance of them. Every time I think of them, my thought can't be self-contained. I have to say thank you, God, for that relationship in my life and that person in my uh, life. And then second, to set our minds upon all of the Christians who continue on in their Christian lives and their Christian service, whatever challenges that uh, they face, whatever ups and downs that they face in life and doing so. And then third, like the church in Philippi in Paul's life, to remember with thanksgiving all the people uh, who have stuck with us as friends and co-laborers through all of the thick and thin in life. All of the ups uh, and, and downs. And then to make that group of people, however large that group may be, however small that group may be, to make those people a real cause for joy in our lives. They are there in our lives. Every one of us possesses this kind of, of person within our lives, but sometimes we just have to stop and remember them. They get buried underneath all of the others. And so the re redirecting of our thoughts and our meditations uh, to them and away from uh, all of the others is a real key to thanksgiving and joy. It's a simple truth, but it's a powerful truth. It may not even be the most important aspect of joy that we'll see as we go through the book of Philippians, but it's an important one. And as it w builds with the others, 
It is a, an important part of recognizing uh, the importance of joy and then how joy can be maintained in, in our lives when there is uh, so much that can come against it. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, I pray for myself and, and I pray for everyone that's here today and we, we pray for one another and ask that just in the privacy of our own hearts, if we have just settled down in any way into a joyless Christian life, a joyless Christian experience, and we've grown accustomed to it, and we view it as optional equipment in the Christian life, that you would use today to wake us up to the fact that you want us to enjoy this Christian life and all that is involved in it. Would you make us acutely aware of these emotions and these mental states that we can settle into as opposed to joy and then make them the permanent characteristic of our life so that we might recognize them, that we might repent of them, and allow You by Your Holy Spirit to give joy its needed place within our lives. This morning we thank You, Lord, in the midst of all of the people that can trouble us, all of the people that break our hearts, and that there are those that have stuck with us through thick and thin, that there are those that we can say with every thought, I thank You for every remembrance of them. And Lord, to help us even this morning, but then by Your Spirit to make it a characteristic of our lives to be reminded of this great group of people in our lives and the source of joy that they were to Paul and they are to us. And we ask these things of You, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.